you can really talk about a revolution in the sense that they they radically change a situation also not considering other people's voices as in every revolution happen there were people and there are still people that are against the kind of new order evolves and changes continuously, particularly because of globalizing processes. So what he realizes is that this form of self-consumption were leading to a loss of identity and to, for example, and was promoting the industrial production of food, for example, of wine. also negative impacts probably on the old tradition because the fact is that the, the past identities and old tradition have been mixed with new identities that were created through this exchange and this is I think is the risk of slow food so slow food is often highly criticized by scholars for example to create tradition to invent the traditions. You're listening to The Three Ecologies. This is a podcast in which we explore the environmental, social and mental forces which increasingly appear to be in crisis today. In this first episode, we explore the slow food movement together with my good friend Emanuele Amo, who's a researcher at the University of Aberystwyth in Wales. We begin this episode with Emanuele's own personal connection with the slow food movement and its origins in the region of Piedmont in the northwest of Italy. We talk about the revolution in winemaking that occurred in the 1980s in that region, which really in many ways put Italy back on the map as a winemaking country the way we know it today. And from there we talk about the relationship between globalization and tradition. We talk about the EU and its double role as both one of the primary agents of neoliberalization within Europe, while at the same time being one of the strongest supporters of initiatives like the slow food movement. We even talk about the relationship between Catholicism and communism within Italy. And we explore the theme of food sovereignty and we ask, to what extent that concept can be imported into Europe from its Latin American origins. So I really hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation which picks up on so many of the themes which pertain to our everyday experience and our everyday lives. From the foods we eat to the associations and images which we connect with certain places, to our ideas of tradition and craft and traditional ways of producing. There's a lot in here, so enjoy this conversation and stay tuned for more. There will be more episodes of The Three Ecologies being released soon. So I think maybe the best point is to just start with, with, with you and how you, how you went from this Italian literature student going to the UK 
and then finding himself doing a master's dissertation on a food movement that started in Italy and then doing a PhD in Wales and so on. So uh, how do you now remember the way that this path started for you in terms of specifically your, your, your master's dissertation? Okay, Th thank you. Thank you so much for the possibility to to speak a little bit about this, uh, this experience that of course was uh, and is still important for for me. So as you know the the, the, the slow food movement is an is an international organization um, born in the 80s in the region so in Pied in the in the in the region of Piedmont northwest Italy where I come from and it born uh, and it was created by a group of uh, young activists in a town where my family comes from so uh, this is, so I have somehow already a quite personal link with with the slow food movements because we both come from the same area, let's say that. And, and we both are now international <laughs> somehow. <laughs> so um, I remember that one of the one of uh, of the professors and it, and this is also interesting. At the beginning I was not really during the master I was not really interested in working on the slow food movement. But one of, uh, of our professor, one of the professors from my, my master at the University of Bristol, uh, Dr. Jackson, Professor Jackson, he suggested me, because he knew that, that reality, knew that movement, and he knew that the movement was created and, had, and has, still has its quarter where I come from, he suggests me to, 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 to focus and try to do so, like a research or um, to engage with the reality. And uh, I accepted and I started trying to understand, to read books and things about that movement that of course I knew because it's very important in my, in, in, in that area of Italy and in Italy in general, but uh, that was like a kind of new world for me. And, and so I started working on my dissertation. I created connection with uh, some of the slow food founders. And I was really interested and I tried to, to, to understand how uh, the origin of the movement. So how a group of young activists, people younger, actually younger than us, they were 22, 23, they were university students or just guys um, working in, sh in shops or in factories, uh, how they created like this organization from zero they started actually with a, a, a radio. Uh, they the uh, radio um, where they were where they used to talk uh, like one of the first free Ita free Italian radio where they were used to talk about politics and so on. 
and how uh, these movements basically in 30 years became uh, such an important organization. I mean, now the Slow Food Movement is really, is really huge. It's really wide. They have projects in more than 100 countries. Uh, they, they, they are founded by the European Union and so on. Uh, and, and I try to... And what I realized is, what, is that it was really un- important the the kind of un- the understanding that these young people had of globalizing processes. So, like these activists uh, realized that it was possible to to emulate other territories abroad with similarities with uh, with their or with their with Piedmont and try not to copy but to 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 propose the same strategies of development and uh, and this is how the movement started uh, naturally um, the movement has changed a lot uh, and this is why I try to to use the notion of translocality somehow to describe the evolution of this movement and and to describe the nature of the movement uh, since the early 2000. And for me, of course, the idea of translocality, the, the idea of trans, translocality involves also my personal experience as, a, as an Italian student working uh, from the UK uh, on an international organization, about an international organization. And I realized, and I also now that I'm still doing this work because this is an ongoing process, I realized that the first translocal subject in this pr- research project is me and myself because translocality is uh, and I think that this is why it's so fascinating for researchers is that you can experience translocality translocality is not just a process but it is really an experience and is a kind of for me kind of transfer locality the idea of fair like from the Latin ferro, to go. It's like to go to a different, to move between different locals. And I have, re- and this feeling is really strong in, in this moment where because of the virus, I'm working, for example, in remote by computer. Imagine, you know, I describe like, like a normal day of my life. I'm in front of my computer. I have a call with, I don't know, a farmer from the Slow Food Movement or not in the south of Italy. I speak Italian. I speak in a, in a certain matter because I know that Italian people, you know, I know how to deal with Italian people. I know what 
how to behave, how to present myself. After five minutes, I'm speaking with someone in Wales, in another language, in another way. And maybe 10 minutes later, I'm on the international digital platform of the movement where I try to organize interview with someone else. This is for me, and so this is experiencing translocality, and, and this is not just experiencing translocality, but is also experiencing the idea of translocal assemblage, because this is assembling and disassembling yourself, uh, you know, through, for example, the computer. You really like, it's like if I have like a cable, this is an extension of myself. I put the cable, you know, like in the old movies where when, when you want to speak at the phone, you put the cable to speak with London and, you know, and then you take off the cable, you put the cable, you squeeze. And this is for me the activity of assembling this assembling. And the idea of translocality involves the fact that you you are local in a different way. When, when I say that I speak a different language, but also I behave in a different manner, because my, of course, when I speak with an Italian farmer, I'm more Italian, you know, I have certain kind of memories. I remember, you know, oh, maybe I should say this because I remember a movie, you know, I also pretend to be a kind of person. Whereas, so this for me is experiencing the translocality. Can I, can I jump in and ask a bit of a question about that? The slow food movement seems to me to be, have always been translocal in the sense that it was this group of friends, activists who were associated with like the post-communist politics in, in Italy and the sort of writing for... Um, different newspapers, journals, etc., that were around this political orbit. And they started traveling from their uh, Lange, like this region in Piedmont, to Burgundy in France to sort of like try and understand what they were doing there in Burgundy, that they were able to, to capture uh, the territory and really promote it in this way. So... Like, I guess one of the questions that I, I have about that is who, who were they meeting with in, in Burgundy itself to try to understand what they had going on there? Well, they were basically speaking with uh, uh, French uh, wine producers. So what they realize is that the, the Burgundy and the Lange, so the uh, south part of Piedmont, had many similarities in terms of biodiversity, in terms of, uh, of, the, of the terror, of the landscape. Both were famous based on, on, the, on the wine production, but the difference was the management of the territory and the attitude that the, the winemakers had towards uh, globalization and globaliza globalizing processes, such as, for example, tourism, you know. 
or um, wine export to foreign countries. So they, they what they what they did was was to go was to visit these wine producers in the region of Burgundy and understand their attitude their attitude not also they were also interested in the in some method practical methodologies of producing wine but I think that they were they were particularly interested in the in the attitude that these wine makers have towards globalizing processes such as as I said tourism and so on uh, new ways of of for example uh, in Piedmont there were no the, the idea of, of the wine canteen was associated just with um, wine production and not with for example wine tours or you know you have the, the canteen and you open a restaurant so you have uh, you know tourists coming to visit your canteen and you can deliver um, lessons uh, and so on and this was something that uh, French winemakers w were doing in the 80s, you know? They were basically promoting their own territory, whereas um, Italian uh, winemakers were not interested in promote. They were really scared about the idea of being open uh, to other realities and to tourists and so on. About the idea that 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 the slow food has always been translocal. Uh, somehow I agree with you, and I thought about this idea uh, quite a lot in the last few years. <laughs> what I think is um, is that because of course I use translocality and I use translocality in opposition to the idea of. Uh, uh, network and in particular as a way also to to overcome you know this kind of of rigid way you know like of network and trans and transnationality so of rigid connections between uh, based on the idea that territories are just made by nations uh, and you have to think about place in terms of nations. But I also think that uh, maybe, uh, I mean, translocality is just, it's just a way of describing a phenomenon, you know? It can be also like something on, on, that you can connect to the ontological nature of something. But I think that most of the time it's just, it's just a perspective that helps you to understand the phenomenon better, you know, in terms of, uh, of the qualities of the phenomenon. And because translocality is really related to communication, I don't know if in the 80s there was the possibility, because there was no internet, because, you know, these exchanges were one direction exchange exchanges you know i don't know if the idea of translocality can help you to understand what the food really was 
in the 80s, you know, more than the idea of transnationality or uh, network. Mm. As far as I understand it, it's, it's a way, it's first of all a gesture that refuses this idea of, set, of distinguishing between global and local to say it's either or. It's either, either this is proper Piemontese uh, production as it always was, or it's just a sort of a globalized economy type of, and then there can be a certain critique leveled against that as well. And it's also, I read that somewhere, maybe you wrote it, maybe some you were quoting someone that, uh, emphasizing that the idea of tradition is, a, is like the, the, the idea of, um, of like traditional practice is such a modern phenomenon as well. This, this, this whole preoccupation with tradition and with, um, and so the, the, there's a really interesting dynamic in terms of thinking about sort of not giving into these temptations of either, of, of either a romanticism, uh, sort of a, a, a local traditional romanticism, or on the other hand, a kind of a, um, well, let's move on. Uh, it's the global market now and uh, throw everything out. So like how, so it's a huge question of like, how do you, how do you preserve something that necessarily needs to change in a, in a way? And how do you use uh, like other inspirations to like almost invent the culture that then you invent as traditional, but it kind of is traditional. So there's this weird contradiction. And I thought one of the sections that I really loved where I'm not so, I was also not entire this this figure Bartolo Mascarello, this guy who in the who like in the 1970s or whatever was quite quite uh, famous or well known in in Lange to be like as a winemaker and also having like leftist leaning political views and so on and he was he was the guy who produced the wine bottle at some point that said no Barichi, no Berlusconi, like. Uh, refusing and the barique being the or barique or however you pronounce it being the being the french um not being a sort of a hyper industrial method at all but not being the local method either so it's a mm. french sort of small oak barrel method of, of 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 ripening the the wine and that makes it i think there was a lot of it was about time was about making it quicker and one of the one of the parts that I found so fascinating was this, um, I'm just going to, I think this is actually from a New York Times article from 2005 that I found about this, where they say, um, unlike Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, which produce fine wines all over the world, Nebbiolo, which is a type of grape, Nebbiolo refuses to flourish anywhere else than in Piedmont. Um, and, uh, and then they go on and they talk about these Barolo or the Barolo is one type of wine or uh, Barbaresco. And then they talk that, about how um, the evolution of that wine requires a decade or more because it's very bitter in the beginning. Um, and then in the last uh, third of the 20th century, many Barolo producers sought to speed up this process traveling around the world. They tasted other wines and noted the public's taste for softer, fruitier wines that were enjoyable at an earlier stage. Um, and then they adopted these techniques from French and American wine producers, Napa, Napa Valley, 
uh, and, um, and, and, and Burgundy and so on. And I just thought that there was one, first of all, this, of course, the notion of time, like uh, that you need to speed up the process. What's a quicker way to do this? But then also this idea of the international public taste. So how a public taste is generated and how then in the 1980s and 1990s, you have places like Australia or Chile producing vast vast amounts of wine. And I mean, to this day, when in the, in, in, the UK as a broke student that as you are, when you go to some nice dinner and you want to buy not the cheapest wine, you get the Casilera, what is it called? Casilera Diabolo. It's a Chilean wine. So very, um, and it's actually interesting because uh, there's uh, the, the way that Chilean wines and South African wines have really made an entry into that market and so on. And so what happens with these regions like Piedmont that has a, an incredible tradition and this guy Bartolo Mascarello saying, I'm refusing this French technique. I'm only doing it the way that my great grandfather ta- taught me. But then there's this kind of contradiction because it's like on the one hand you think, oh, he's this hero and he's against Berlusconi and he refuses even the French uh, technique of producing wine but then as far as I understand slow food then promoted the 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 barrique as a, as yeah. their as as the method and they were so they were kind of innovating on the structures and the traditions that were there but they were also breaking with them in order to somehow make them survive and in in at a time when these other markets started started to change the tastes of, of, of the world. Yeah, what, what, what basically the, the idea, the methodology of, of the barrique, so of using this kind of oak barrel, small, smaller barrels in order to, uh, I don't know if you say in English, like make or to, to, to store where you, you can store the wine, uh, was basically imported to, from Burgund, from the region of Burgundy to Piedmont by uh, the slow food founders. And, and you know, like when, when I told you the slow food founders were going, were visiting, uh, were visiting the French farmers, it was also to, to be able to understand this kind of methodologies. Uh, yeah, and Martin Mascarello was one of the most important winemakers and the family is still a very, very important um, producer of wine. Uh, he was refusing, he, he was against the, this kind of production. Uh, apart from like the, 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 the specificity, you know, like without going into the specific uh, methodology and so on, what I, can, what I can say is that Translocality is for me being, having, or creating multiple identities. You know, this idea of the movement, it's really related about creating multiple identities. And of course, this can be, this, you know, Having uh, uh, containing multiple identities at the same time, and so you create also new traditions. You know, because if we follow the the, the, the saying that tradition is a product of modernity, 
you know? Uh, I, creating, uh, having multiple identities means also that you have multiple traditions. Also implies like something negative, something positive, but also something negative. My master dissertation probably focuses as a quite partisan uh, perspective. So I was trying to, to, to lead the narrative on, on a positive path. Whereas there are also, of course, negative. There have been also negative impacts probably on the on 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 the on the old tradition because the fact is that uh, the, the 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 old the the past identities and old tradition have been mixed with new identities that were created through this exchange and this is I think is the risk of slow food so slow food is often highly criticized by scholars, for example, to create tradition, to invent the traditions and to apply, you know, like tradition to other people and say, okay, you know, uh, through these very dynamic exchanges. Uh, And this is is something that I think uh, you have to consider when you study a slow food, the slow food movement and every translocal process. Mm. So also in the case of, of the barrique, uh, but in general of this, uh, of, of the origin, you know, of this process of redevelopment, you know, re-territorialization, let's say, of the Lange made by the slow food activists, uh, there was a, there was also you know like a loss of of identities because these identities has been replaced by new identities it's really no it's really actually i'm really most interested by that struggle and of course that struggle also being in you both of this like and that's for me very much the tension contained in the translocal as well is this that it's not oh this is great it's translocal amazing and sort of like no there are lots of it's there there are tragic points as well and it's not so easy and that's why also i think um as i was taking some notes for this i was realizing more and more that like it because you could think, oh, whatever, who cares about what happened in the 80s when they went to France and, 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 and sort of re-innovated or, or reinvented the, the, the Piemontese uh, winemaking and whatever. Now, now uh, uh, slow food and Telamada is something completely different. So that's just sort of, that's just old history there and, and, and so on. And like try and or there is this sort of like trying to find the origin, like what was the origin of it? Where did it really come from? And I actually thought it was really funny that the, I don't know if the if this guy Petrini has a real good sense of humor, but the a lot of the a lot of his titles have this like Christian reference, like in the beginning was the was the wine, or then he calls it the arc of uh, the arc of taste, this this exhibition on like. Uh, uh, also seeds and so on, like the Ark of the Covenant, I guess, or whatever. And so these like Christian um, uh, themes, and at least I read them quite uh, humorously, that if you say in the beginning was the wine, it's of course kind of a mocking gesture to, like of course there was in the beginning was the wine, but also it, it, 
it it differentiates it differentiates itself from itself all the time. So like just trying to trace a, a singular straight line from like the the first trip they made to Burgundy in 1980 to then. 2020 when they have their uh, uh, online conference spread out over an entire year with workshops with farmers from 160 countries. So, um, yeah, I think definitely this, maybe the, the notion of like genealogy is a much better one than a search for origins or whatever. That just, I just find it it's somehow weird because it's both really fascinating and insightful. It's been really insightful for me to read these, to read up on these really peculiar small details of like this guy Mascarello or whatever and sort of like what and they and then imagining like how they how they took some guy's car and then they just went to Burgundy and then they were just rocked up and they were like yeah we and it, as you said before the internet they probably didn't even have a phone number of anyone they just rocked up and said hey we want to do this in in Italy and so oh, uh, uh, it, it was really I think that it, it you can really talk about a revolution in the sense that they they radically change a situation also not considering other people's voices as in every revolution happen there were people and there are still people that are against the kind of new order and new power relations, you know, that are, have been built since the 80s, since this radical change in the Burgundy. But because they are, they were radical in their idea of changing the territory, uh, they, they made it. And you know, and this idea that Petrini is, uh, uses a very, uh, Catholic, apocalyptic, uh, let's say, vocabulary. He just he just wrote a book with the Pope anyway. It was by it was published last week. Yeah, Petrini was. He comes from the radical left. He was coming. He has been one of one like an, he was an important member of the Italian Communist Party. I don't remember who said that. Uh, the only real believers, and in brackets, Christian believers, are the communists. <laughs> well, that was... I don't remember who made this quotation, but, you know, there are similarities, if you think. That was the something idea. I found quite interesting in this. Uh, one of the articles you cited was by this Australian anthropologist, uh, Alison Leitch, and she wrote this article about the Lardo di Colonata. And so she's like tracing slow food through the Italian political history and the downfall of the PSI and the Pici and, and so on. And it's one of the things that she suggests, and I'd be curious what, what you think about this, is that uh, Petrini and many of his activist friends were in some ways reacting against the Catholicism of the communist party and the communist movement and how like austere it was. And part of what they were trying to say is that no, you know, working people and so on can also enjoy good food, good taste, all of these uh, different kind of amenities. 
Um, and so it is indeed like that tension with the austerity of Christianity as well and communism. Absolutely. I, 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 I think that you, I mean, I, I really agree with you and, and I add the, the word austerity in my mind while you were speaking, because uh, exactly, I think that uh, Petrini was and is, is still between like these, uh, these two spheres, you know, communism, socialism, and Catholicism, because that territory as at the end, uh, most of the north of Italy has been for, for a good century split between these two um, power you know, areas of, of power and, and so on. Uh, but what it didn't accept from bo of, of both these narrative was the idea of, of austerity. I mean, and I never been really interested in the notion of um, gastronomy, you know, of pleasure. That is really important in the in the slow food ideology. But because there are already many studies, I don't know. I'm not really very. I'm not really interested in, to explore these these notions in relation to the slow food movement. But what I recognize is that they are really important uh, from the perspective of of a break you know of a break uh, with the, with the tradition of both communist and catholicism there were at the end uh, the, the tradition where uh, mascarello came from because mascarello was a catholic communist uh, well, I think that's another one of the things is the role of ritual in all of these practices as well, right? And again, if we're talking about the history of Catholicism and the history of communism, ritual is very central to, to both of those. And uh, this uh, talking about the lardo and how the specific way that they, they made it was with the marble excavated from the quarry of that like set of towns in, in Northern Tuscany. And, and it was exactly the um, sort of porosity uh, of the marble, which allowed for the creation of this particular type of, of, of pig fat, of, of lard. And the, and this episode uh, brings out a couple of things, because on the one hand, there is this, critique of the slow food movement from a lot of the people that are skeptical of it, that uh, by associating themselves with a particular product, they do a lot to commodify the product. So, I mean, that's, that's there and we can think about that. But another one of the interesting things is that this uh, conflict around Larda di Colonata was central to the process of Europeanization which for me seems to be deeply tied up with the whole evolution of, of slow food as both um, indelibly connected to Europeanization and the whole idea of Europe of the regions, you know, uh, 
identifying these different particularities which connect Burgundy and Piedmonte and, and the list goes on. And there was this whole sort of regionalist green movement. It's no coincidence that in the European Parliament, all the green parties caucus with the regionalist parties, you know. On the other hand, Europeanization is also a process of homogenization and standardization and trying to make particular products safe as well by sort of saying, oh, no, you can't, you can't make the cheese like this. You can't make the lardo like that and so on. And so it's like, uh, yeah, slow food and, and Europe or the European Union, more properly speaking, are like, you can't think of one without the other, you know. Yeah, I think that uh, that we uh, EU is is a very controversial and complex relation. I mean, uh, the the EU is at the same time the most important partner and enemy of the slow food movement. With enemy, let's say, um, more than enemy rival or opposer, let's say that. So, but this is also, and this can be, this can be interpreted as something paradoxical or hypocritical. And of course there are also these aspects. But from my perspective, it's also, this also relates to the very practical uh, way of working of the slow food movement. And that's also the, the big difference between like an organization like the slow food movement and La Via Campesina, for example, where the ideology is, is more sometimes important than the practice. In the slow food movement, most of the time the practice wins over the ideology. That means that if you have to do a project that you need money to do the project, even though not all your beliefs are respected and match with the practice, they are gonna for they're they're gonna get the money and they're gonna to realize the project. Mm. Even though they sometimes have to find uh, a kind of and then might also be very Italian, I don't know, like part of the Italian attitude. But this, this, so this actually, I think this is a great way, way to get into some of these questions of food sovereignty. And uh, because there's one quote I wanted to read from the uh, Petrini and Padovani, I think it's a series of interviews or whatever in 2005. They talk, they say the old talking about this sort of in initial phase of slow food and they talked about they talk about the, the old-fashioned mentality of lange citizens who were incapable of making use of the tourism and production potential of the land and were still attached to a habit of local consumption and when you read because you i mean so this is also a good a good case of understanding this this kind of double movement or this simultaneous uh, deterritorialization and re-territorialization because clearly there is a sort of, there is a very strong deterritorializing aspect of this like breaking up 
breaking them up from this like from these encrusts encrusted old practices that were so idiosyncratic and closed in and really not visible to anyone else and you need to you need to open these doors you need to make it visible for the world and there is a lot of that's not just something that you can once you look at it that way you cannot take sides you cannot just say oh this is this is this is uh, this is just beautiful and oh look at the winemakers but you can also not just take the side and say like this is just evil a uh, neoliberal um, sort of capture of traditional markets or whatever. It's much more ambiguous and it's much more in there because if it, and so I think this kind of idea of like opening up regions that are kind of caught in their old ways, let's say, is always a, is always an ambiguous and, and dangerous operation. It's an operation at the open heart. And at some points, it's maybe the only hope such a region has to not be just completely turned into something entirely different, which has nothing to do with the, with the tradition. But I think with that comes this theme, which I think has also made such an appearance or such an entry into popular culture in the last decade or two decades from things like, I mean, if you think about that, What's that movie by, with um, uh, Eat, Eat, Pray, Love, which is, I don't know if you, the Julia Roberts movie, and this is based on a novel. But this yeah, is, I mean, this, I haven't seen the movie it, itself, but as far as I know, I mean, it's a movie where basically Italy becomes the representation of enjoyment, right? I mean, and so this whole idea also, not just within the American Hollywood mind, but within the kind of global uh, awareness of Italy as a place of pleasure, right? Because that whole movie and book is about how she seeks, how she goes to these three countries starting with I and she wants to like uh, seek. She like, falls in love with an Italian guy. Yeah, exactly. But also like enjoy the Italian food, right? And sort of this, yeah. this kind of, there's also things like the chef's table on Netflix, which is a, <clears throat> I think they have six seasons now or whatever. And uh, following these chefs and documenting in quite a sort of it's half biography of the chef and it's always a very dramatic story of how they overcame obstacles and, and, and whatever and how they and but such but it has this kind of feel good element to it and the social justice element to it where it's always about empowering local producers and the real pro like this kind of taste you can only get when you work directly with the farmers and so this kind of theme has made it into popular culture in, in, in quite significant ways whether it's a Hollywood movie or this 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 netflix series and so there is now because you mentioned la via campesina and i don't actually know that much about it but as specifically it feels like these themes of food sovereignty versus food security and and but then also the foodie culture and this sort of there there's a lot of uh competing claims over food food has become a hot topic <laughs> no pun intended um, um, and and there are these competing claims over it whether it's in the name of food security measuring calorie intakes of certain populations and then regulating especially in the third world and developing countries regulating certain sectors and telling pastoralists to to uh, start growing beans and rice because then they're more food secure and and just having a very vague familiarity with the concept of food sovereignty is that the sovereignty part of it is specifically trying to make food 
a, a political issue, one that is not just an issue of administration or of, or of sort of secular pleasure, but that is one that food is in some ways perhaps a privileged entry point for revealing some of the, some of the power dynamics in place and also working towards uh, a type of sovereignty starting from food. I mean, food sovereignty, in my opinion, is a political program. And it's also a quite specific political program that comes from uh, a certain political and social tradition that is that of some Latin American countries, like in particular Mexico, Ecuador, Bolivia. And it is really rooted in the way uh, Central and Latin American countries, certain, let's say, part of the Latin American society understand and interpret politics and, and politics and doing and practicing politics. And so also practicing uh, sovereignty. So uh, it's an idea that is strongly relates to the concept of radical democracy. So that the citizen must be always really uh, active in promoting his own rights and that the 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 the, the, the that the the, the goal the central government the idea that the, the government is it's uh, uh, it's less important than other forms of uh, of power like for example social movements what, what I think is that sometimes the, I think that the slow food movement has somehow been, in my opinion, a little bit naive in thinking that it was easy just, just to be a food sovereignty movement because you say, I'm a food sovereignty movement. You know? You can say, you can present yourself as a food sovereignty movement, but because you you don't come from that cultural background that is, I don't know, like uh, the Mexican campesino culture of the 90s, with all, you know, the complexity of that reality, you are not, actually. <laughs> or what you... Or, and I think that it is even worse. I mean, I can understand, and, and, and this is what I'm trying to, to, to say in, in the chapter that I, I, I tell you, is that there might be different ways of embodying and experiencing the idea of food sovereignty. But in that case, you have to be very clear in saying, okay, I don't want to be as La Via Campesina. La Via Campesina, that is the social movement, the reality from which the idea of food sovereignty comes from is something is a peasant leaded movement we are a middle class european social movement made by not by not leaded by farmers but mostly by these journalists uh, activists uh, scholars and so on and we want to propose another way, another interpretation of food sovereignty. This discourse 
that has not been made by the slow food movement lead to a series of misinterpretation, lead to, for me, what is a kind of naive behavior from the slow food movement, the things that just saying I'm a food sovereignty movement embodies the idea of, of, uh, of food sovereignty. And on the other way, the fact that there is a reaction from movements like La Via Campesina and their supporters, for example, in the academia, that doesn't, that don't understand that there might be other ways that maybe the slow food movement could be a food sovereignty movement in, a, in another way. But just say, they just want to stress the fact that they are very different from La Via Campesina. And so from the traditional food sovereignty movement. Because the food sovereignty is at the same time a movement, and this is the, also the interesting thing of, of the idea of food sovereignty, is that food sovereignty is at the same time an idea, a concept, and a movement. The idea and the movement are the same thing somehow, as we, I mean, as the academia interpret and present the idea of food sovereignty. You cannot divide the movement from the idea, from the, the political program. And for me, this is very limiting, you know, because uh, it doesn't consider the exchange that there is between the, the movement, the La Via Campesina, and other social movements. And, and this somehow, and, and then I, I stopped talking, reminds me, you know, at the beginning of your, of your discourse, you say, that, uh, you remind, um, you quoted Petrini, you know, and how he was uh, complaining about, uh, about the fact that uh, Italian farmers were, um, we're, we're not open to tourism and we're living still on the idea of self-production. This, of course, can, is in contrast with the idea of food sovereignty, you know, that is really based on the idea of self-production, self-consumption, independency, or in, 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 in the peasant way, in the very ortho, orthodoxical way of interpreting the, the notion of food sovereignty. But it's also true that what I mean for me is also important to 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 understand that to think that what Petrini realizes is that things goes on, things evolve and change continuously, particularly because of globalizing processes and because of these new forms of communications and exchange. It is also made by migration and so So what he realizes is that this form of self-consumption were leading, was leading, and this kind of, um, this attitude of remain close to yourself was leading to a loss of identity and to, for example, and was promoting, for example, and fostering the, the industrial production of food for example, of wine, because winemakers 
were producing the wine that they were good wine for self-consumption and they were using powders and other stuff additives to produce wine to sell because they were not interested in that market so on the on the industrial production of wine there was this thing i read in in some of your work that there was uh, actually a sort of poisoning of many people because there was like a adulteration of the wine with like methanol or something and this was a big impetus for petrini and all these uh, of his of his comrades to actually uh, embark on the whole journey was that in the 1980s it was in 1986. Okay. Yeah. So that's, when the, this scandal exploded, let's say. Yeah, and I guess that's part of what you're saying of the the changes are happening anyways. It's a question of how you are going to sort of control those changes and ride the wave of deterritorialization. It's it's the question of how, not whether or if. You know, and um, but. More directly on the question of sovereignty, I think, again, like Lucas, I'm, I'm also not very well educated about La Via Campesina, but from what I understand, it comes a lot out of sort of uh, antagonistic engagements with like the WT, WTO and other global trade bodies, NAFTA in the 1990s. Uh, and the effects that that had on subsistence agriculture um, in countries like Mexico, Ecuador, etc. So for me, you, you say there's this ideology of, of radical peasant democracy, and it's also a very, um, uh, it's openly antagonistic. It knows, it knows to some extent who its enemies are. Meanwhile, with the slow food movement, it seems to me that the, the forces against which it is arrayed are somewhat more amorphous. They're less specific. It's broader questions about sort of globalization or um, other, other types of transformations that are much harder to sort of like put your finger on and, 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 uh, point towards as as a specific antagonist, and I guess that is also related to the EU question of it is both one of the biggest collaborators and biggest antagonists of this movement. So it's you know if you're talking about food sovereignty, I mean one of the questions you asked is who is the sovereign <laughs> in in North in European food sovereignty, but also who are you uh, protecting against? But you know, like what what you said, it's uh, it's all true. You know, I think that you 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 really got the point. Uh, La Via Campesina is more radical, more radical, and also more extreme than than the slow food movement. It's um, uh, Marxist. Uh, super anti-capitalist, super anti-neoliberalist movement. They don't want to collaborate at all with any organization that they consider part of the neoliberal system, whereas the slow food movement is part of the neoliberal system, right? 
they cooperate with the European Union, with governments, and so on. Even though they have this, they have conflicts with these partners because they pro they try to promote their own ideology, their own ideas. About the, who is the sovereign? I mean, this is for me. This for me relates the mistake that in general has been made with communists in, in in the last century, with the idea of the revolution. So the idea is that you have an ideology, you want to do a revolution, and you want to do that revolution in the same way in every part of the earth you are gonna you think that the revolution that you are gonna make it in russia must be the same revolution that you are gonna make in the uk that is gonna be the same revolution that you are gonna make in cuba and so on you adapt uh, rigidly the same model to different realities and you think that this model is gonna work in the same way and with the same effect. And in and because La Via Campesina is a Marxist, I mean, this is my personal opinion, of course, but I see this kind of idea also in La Via Campesina. They think that they can propose. So what La Via Campesina is doing is opening this kind of uh, political schools in Europe where they teach to farmers like the campesino ideology. And this for me, it's very interesting. Like it's a, I mean, it can be seen as like a very interesting, super amazing social experiment, but it's useless. It's useless because you give for, you know, you, you and this is about, and this is not about an exchange. This is about, taking the identity of someone and reshaping completely the identity of that person on the identity of someone completely different, of someone else. And, uh, and so, and this doesn't involve any exchange, you know? No one is gonna ask him to the campesino in France, to the farmer in France, to teach something to the campesino in Bolivia. It's just asking to the, the farmer in France to learn the, the way of living of the campesino and to adapt his own life on the campesino life. And this is why the movement is so strong in South America and is so weak in Europe, because in Europe is strong only in the academia because the academics are very fascinated by this idea. But concretely, like tell me, like apart like international meetings, one big project that has been managed, that managed has changed something concretely made by La Via Campesina in Europe in North America. I can find anyone. So you, 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 you know also about the idea of sovereign. The sovereign is a person different, is a different person in every place. I, I, I don't even want to see the sovereign is the people because it doesn't mean 
nothing to me. But what I can see is, I don't know who he is, but it must be different in every place. And, and, and from this perspective, I think that the Marxist ideology and the history of Marxism and of the failed communist revolution plays a big part into this, into, into this discourse, because we are talking about a Marxist political movement. So it's not something the history of the revolution uh, of in Latin America and in Russia are something that we, we have to, to take into consideration in their uh, in their success, but also in their failure. Yeah, I, I think that's very very interesting. What I would also say is that it's it's very clear in the sort of approach of um, the slow food movement when you consider its relationship with Italian communism and Italian socialism and the uh, sort of inside outside um, position which those have had with the state, right? Um, that especially, you know, after the, after the Second World War, Italian mainstream Italian communism was never the, the type of antagonistic uh, social movement that you had, you know, before the war, during the war, but also in, in different parts of the world through the Marxist-inspired national liberation movements of the 50s, 60s, 70s. It's, Italian communism was always a different beast than these, or perhaps not always, but it ended up being... Um, and so I think if you sort of trace those lineages through, it's clear. But then you also see, in many ways, a, a widening cleavage, in some sense, between the civic associationalism of the slow food movement and political parties and other forms of like mass democracy in in Europe and in Italy in particular, I think, uh, with the sort of dissolution of the left and its complete disorientation today. Whereas, I mean, again, don't know as much about it, but it seems to me that uh, with La Via Campesina, there's a, a bit of a tighter articulation between like that movement and a, a mass political line as well. So I think, yeah, but it, it is all about like what is the context you are in and, and what is it specifically that you are trying to achieve? I think, I mean, what, 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 because my research is about the contribution that the slow food movement provide and can provide to the idea of food sovereignty, or at least the relation between the slow food movement and, and the idea of food sovereignty. But I see, I see this research in terms of exchange. I can see these, this research only in terms of what the slow food movement can learn from La Via Campesina. In my opinion, an exchange involves you know, and this is also about translocality. 
because the idea of translocality involves a kind of exchange. Yeah. Uh, or maybe maybe uh, even better than an exchange, uh, theft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. the losing Gotari would be very yes. fond of saying that theft is much better than exactly. exchange. Absolutely. Because the thing about, I mean, this is, it's been really interesting in this conversation to go back to the, to the sort of the emergence and, and the several strands of emergence of the slow food movement and kind of, it, because I think there's so much in it. I think I found it really fascinating to read the story of them going to Burgundy and so on. And I think that it reminded me of one of my favorite Uh, uh, quotes from from Guattari that also Lazzarato uses often where Guattari says subjectivity is part of the infrastructure kind of poking at at least a certain tendency of some Marxists to say subjectivity is superstructure infrastructure is just means of production and so on because the interesting thing I found is that what these people brought back from Burgundy like Petrini wasn't just the the barique Uh, barrels, but they brought back a, a model for subjectivity as well, right? A kind of an arrangement where there's another quote about Burgundy by, by Padovani, where, where he says, or she says, um, uh, those famous labels, talking about the Burgundy's labels, combined entrepreneurial talent, a thousand years old history, and a good communication strategy. Most of all, the French had a special skill in selling the overall image of their wine-producing regions, which involved the landscape, hospitality, cuisine, wine, and the team spirit of the Vignerons, which was so different from the individualism of the Tuscans and the Piedmontese. And so I found that that was such a, such a key passage for me as well, because you can, you can really see how they took back much more than a sort of like, oh, let's have tourism here as well and let's use these smaller barrels. But there's a, there, that subjectivity is such an important part. And what I find really interesting, and that's the constant tension it feels like that, that, that you need to hold in your work and that I think academia sometimes has such a difficulty holding is this tension between how subjectivity is something that that you cannot just uh, you cannot just reduce it to some sort of origin oh no you're just stealing the burgundy's model no man okay they stole it but they made it their own in a way so is it really theirs or it, it kind of it propagates more by infection rather than by exchange maybe so you don't just you don't just buy a subjective model maybe through consultancy we sometimes think now you can buy yourself a subjective model but That's maybe we'll can talk more to like how the EU tries to sort of um, incubate uh, artificially subjective models for the whole of Europe. But the interesting thing about something like the slow food movement, starting from Piemont and the Lange, but then also spiraling out, is that one of the one of the tendencies that I find very interesting in its dynamic is how how subjectivity is is really something that that is that is that is so such a strong uh, aspect of it. And as you said, I think that's one, once you recognize that it's, it's, it's silly. If you recognize subjectivity is part of the infrastructure, like the barrels, like the so on. Like, so you can transplant it. Yeah. You could take the French barrels, but telling everyone to use the French barrels as the solution to everything is of course silly. So It's something that you can you can you can you can take something of that subjectivity, but think that you could do this campesino like 
that if just everyone was a cam- campesino, then then that would solve everything is 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 obviously quite impractical. I think that's ultimately what it is. I mean, I think for me at least, it's much more interesting to understand the potentialities of something and how something can can change. You know, uh, for example, uh, about the idea of of adapting European society uh, to Latin American society. Uh, the, the, the notion of horizontal democracy, radical democracy, horizontalidad, that is an idea that comes from the experience of Latin American social movements uh, that had fought for many years against uh, dictatorships uh, against, uh, you know, like uh, <coughs> um, big uh, American corporation trying to control the civil society and so on. This is something that, of course, from which you can learn because it's, it's a real experience. But somehow you have to, in my opinion, you have to you have to accept that this experience is going to change. In the very moment, this, gonna, this experience is going to be part, concretely part, of another place, of another culture, this experience is going to be different. It's going to change. You know? It's going to be part of a radical democracy, a different radical democracy. It's not going to be the Argentinian radical democracy. And and this is a mistake that also does, like, and if you think it's interesting because most of the time the slow food movement is a, has been accused by academics of imposing ideas, traditions, and beliefs on other cultures. On, on, but this is like is the same is the other is the other face of the same coin you know i'm wondering if this is like if it's a it, one one last theme that i'd noted down as like something that maybe sort of like <laughs> the, the extreme other end of the of the timeline is um because i was also on the on the on the youtube channel of slow food and i just saw these advertisements for this for this, um, for their biannual conference, which was supposed to be this year, but is now not not happening in 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 Turin, where it usually happens um, because of COVID. And uh, I was actually because of a couple of months or weeks ago when we started talking about this, when there was still a sort of a faint hope that maybe things would have calmed down by then. I was actually quite looking forward to maybe visiting that that that. Uh, exhibition or that that gathering together with you in Turin but now it's it's this it's this online event now so I wonder what the how does how does slow food uh, uh, fare in times of a pandemic they are trying they are trying to adapt themselves to the pandemic so uh, Terra Madre it's usually so Terra Madre is is a community let's say, let's use the definition of network, the traditional definition of network of 
food producers and, this, and representatives of this community gather every two years in Turin for a one week or five days uh, uh, meeting with events, conferences, uh, and uh, etc. and so on. The event now, this year, because of the virus, is going to be uh, in remote. So the Slow Food Movement has organized a platform and where, and basically 90% of the forums, conferences, and, uh, and all the event and talks are going to be uh, on this platform where communities, the communities spread all over the world can participate and organize and promote their own events. It, not, it, it, it will be a six-month event, and so it's gonna it, it's completely it's gonna be a completely different edition. So it's very interesting to me, and I'm really glad, for example, uh, actually that my PhD research is about a movement that is this is so dynamic. You know, this this new format. Uh, this new format relates to the idea of translocality and to this idea of emerging localities that I would like to 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 deepen somehow. It's going to be interesting also to study um, the event from the perspective of community because. There is something in common that I, I quite don't like between the slow food move, the, the ideology, the, let's say, rhetoric of the slow food movement La Via Campesina is that the, both of them uses, present the idea, the no, the, you know, they work a lot with the idea of community. And they make this kind of um, association between the idea of community and that of enjoyment, lack of conflict, you know, agreement. Conviviality, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I found like this discourse really unbearable. Really unbearable, you know, to 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 think, to say that the community. I I I uh, I, I was I watch a few presentations made by Petrini where he was talking about these ideas of we are community because the community has always been like uh, always meant the absence of conflict. No, like it's probably the exact opposite. Who who who, who never said and experienced that. Uh, this is a kind of, I don't know, new age, uh, cheap uh, philosophy, right? So what I'm interested in, one of the many things I'm interested in, uh, in relation to this digital new format of the event, is to see if, if now how the slow food movement is going to present and is going to use this platform because they are because they are going to have much more control of the event because you don't have you think two years ago there were 5000 people 
gathering. And, and now you have a platform where you upload your event or, or where you present your online event, but this platform is controlled by someone. But for me, internet, the web is, I don't see the web as a territory without conflict. For me, the web is a territory with a high concentration of conflicts. So from this perspective, I want to see which kind of uh, image they, of themselves they want to share with the public. Were you going to say something, Will? No, go ahead. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe it's also a good, good, good point to kind of bring this, bring the first conversation to a close. I mean, I don't know. I was just scrolling through my, through my notes that I took as well. And then there's, I feel like this is, it's such a uh, fascinating theme because it opens up into so many different directions. And there are like, I feel like 90% of the kind of questions that I, that I, that I'd written down, they, they, we didn't even, didn't even get into, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm like tempted to just read out some of these things, but then I feel like I would just send us down another rabbit hole. So maybe we should just put that into a, there's like, I, at some point I want to talk about, like, there's something fascinating in this sort of superfood and traditional food and luxury, good food type of thing where the subjectivity of it is such a strong part of it. Like when you see the sort of, Oh, this is regional goat's cheese from the mountains of, of like uh, Abruzzo or whatever, or, or this, this seed, this chia seed was the traditional um, powerhouse for the, for the Aztec warrior that they ate before they went into battle or whatever. So is, I think th within these themes, there's also, it's uh, there's such good themes to also understand these conflicts over production, which are not just over production in terms of like, oh, who gets to produce the food and is it going to be this, this, this big agribusiness, whether that's in Northern Italy or in Australia or in South Africa or whatever, um, or is it the local producer and which barrel do they use? Are they like Mascarello and to, till, till their till the day they die they refuse to use anything other than the very traditional one that takes 10 years and whatever um but it's also a, a contestation about the production of of meanings and of subjectivities and of like what does italian wine mean but also what does it mean to be um to be in, involved with food or what does it what does sovereignty mean in the context of food and And uh, what are the identities that can take shape and that cannot just sustain themselves, that can sustain themselves on the level of these three ecologies, right? That's also one. Like, like when you, you sent me also this, the Facebook page of this, this young Italian farmer who's part of the slow food movement who works in Abruzzo with, with, with goats. And then, and then it's a really interesting phenomenon that now, not only on the on the sort of economic level but also on the social and mental level there are different modes of producing uh, a, a kind of a, a subsistence like you can sustain some people can now sustain themselves with a kind of and the the, the the kind of bundles that they have to string together whether it's eu funding or f facebook or instagram or whatever there will always be conflict in those but there's And it's not about sort of giving them a blank, a, a blank check and just say, this is all great. 
but they, those are really interesting uh, uh, dynamics, which are much larger than the sort of provincial issue of a food movement or whatever, or like, oh, isn't it nice that now people are doing nice food again in the north of Italy and now we can eat, pray and love again. Yeah, I just wanted to say something quick off of the whole idea of the three ecologies and how it relates to the slow food movement. And Lucas, you talked about sort of existential consistency between these three levels, if you will, or spheres of the environmental, social, and mental slash uh, subjective ecology. And I think that Emanuele is sort of what you were saying earlier about the attempt to graft, if you will, the Campesino ideology onto the European regional, uh, different regional traditions has largely failed. It's, it's not been successful and it's, uh, it's not necessarily us as like academics who are partisans of the slow food movement who are rejecting it or something. I don't have a, a dog in the fight in that sense. It's, it's to a certain extent shown itself not to be particularly effective. So I guess part of the question is how, whereas the slow food movement has been picked up in this different way in different contexts. So part of the question is how to sharpen the radical edge of that which does exist rather than trying to sort of graft on a particular subjectivity rooted in Mexico, Bolivia, Ecuador, et cetera, onto what's going on in Europe. And I guess in many ways, that's, that's one of the interesting challenges. At the end, what I'm really interested in is to understand why, for example, uh, a farmer like and I'm a member of the slow food movement is interested in the fate of a farmer, of a campesino, of another farmer living thousand miles away uh, with a completely different experience and understanding of the life. Uh, and I think that Behind this question, I'm not even sure that the same farmer can really answer this question, you know, because maybe it's something more complex than the individual itself, you know. It's a kind of, it's a process in which the individual is fine himself. But I think it's part of this idea that there are flows of relations, flows of... Uh, uh, of ideas, of understandings, of, you know, between subject actors across the world. And of course, technology is helping uh, somehow this, uh, this flow. And this is also why I would like to, to study this phenomenon from, from from the perspective of the relations in place between the actors, you know, I, I try to see my research as a kind of geography of relations. Yeah, that's, it's it kind of, I mean, 
maybe a, a, a theme for another conversation will also be like, because you talk about relations and one of the things you also uh, wrote about was like this subversiveness of uh, inducing different relations between also the human and the non-human that maybe in the European context or in some other context, you cannot be so outright opposed to forces because as we talked about you have to kind of work with the eu you have to work within certain you, you, it's much more it's 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 not as easy and not as clear-cut you cannot be an extremist as you said in your um you cannot just see the sort of like this is there and we're here and so screw them and let's not do this but um yeah with themes like that with like okay on the one hand i really want to kind of emphasize or i find myself wanting to make a strong case for saying that yeah inducing different relations to animals and soil and between animal and soil and humans is hugely important and is somehow a subversive tactic but at the same time there is sometimes a tendency within certain types of academia to just as you said about the slow food movement to just say like just because you call yourself food sovereign doesn't mean you're like just because you call yourself more than human doesn't mean that you're actually changing anything or whatever and so with these kinds of and so i th I think that's very much that's going to be that's going to be our 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 project together here as well and kind of really uh, yeah having these discussions and and talking through these themes where when when we talk about these 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 different crises whether it's the like regional crisis in in Piedmont in in the Lange in 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 1980 or whether it's the subjective crisis of of, of, of late capitalism in general or whatever with these crises it's not as if you could just say this is this is this this is the uh um one size fits all solution to to the crisis guys <clears throat> thank you thank you so much like you you cannot imagine how glad i am that i had the opportunity to to speak with you about uh, about this research and also about my master dissertation like it's quite amazing that you have read it i'm sorry about it <laughs> we have to say to everyone including will who doesn't maybe know this emmanuel literally won an award for his dissertation and so like he won the best dissertation of the year of our course um, and this and this is a I, I wasn't in the race of course <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> And this is a scandal. And this is a scandal. This was the first episode of The Three Ecologies. Thank you so much for listening if you've made it this far. We'll be back with more episodes soon. Episode two is already in the pipeline. We had a fascinating conversation with a researcher from the US, Emily Reisman, who explores with us the almond industry and the many meanings that the almond industry has developed in order to make us eat ever more almonds in an age of superfoods. So stay tuned for that episode. We also want to say a big thank you to our friend and contributor Gaetano Fiorin for the music for this episode. You can check out more of his published music at SoundClouds at Gaetano Fiorin.
Thank you for listening and more soon.